following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. encourage you now to turn in the scriptures to Psalm 72 as we continue in this Advent series. In just a few weeks, with the holidays just barely past us, we are sure to expect a, a ramp-up of ads and promotionals for the 2016 presidential election. We are sure to expect an all-consuming media circus filled with speculation and early polls and political intrigue. Well, before that fanfare begins, let's pause to consider how God has provided his people a king who will give us the peace, the hope, the security, the promise, and the blessing that we deeply desire. As we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, may we remember his coronation and long for the final consummation when we will be with our everlasting king forever and ever. I read... From Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills and righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is God's holy, inspired word. Let us pray. Father, what a glorious vision, what an incredible prayer written so long ago. 
anticipating the coming of Christ and an eternal reign that will never end. We long for such a reign. And our desire is in our King, our Lord Jesus. May you fill us with such desire. May he be our joy and our delight as we study your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend from childhood by the name of Joseph Carlick, who is a rather well-regarded artist. He was the kid in second grade who was drawing animal figures on paper that looked like they were about to walk right off the page. Well, since those days, my friend Joe has uh, designed trade shows for large American corporations. He's done entertainment venues in Atlantic City in Las Vegas, and was also called upon five years ago to design several of the inaugural balls for the Obama inauguration. We can only imagine what type of coronation took place at the inauguration of King Solomon, the setting of our psalm. Psalm 72 is something like an inaugural or coronation prayer written by a talented poet who was seeking the Lord's blessings upon um, David's descendants. As Americans, the concept of being ruled by a king is foreign to us. We've now enjoyed centuries of democracy that a form of government that helps to insulate us from the abuses of power when power is concentrated into the hands of the few. We enjoy our checks and our balances to help minimize the abuses of power. In my observation in recent election cycles, there seems to be an increasing mantra in response to this, this spiritual and moral uh, deterioration in our society. I will hear people say things like, well, we get what we deserve. We elect a liar to public office We've gotten what we deserve. We elect cowards into public office who only pander to special interests and refuse to confront impending looming economic collapse. Well, we get what we deserve. Well, as members of Christ's kingdom, may we express our gratitude that in the gospel we don't get what we deserve. We do not get what we deserve by way of eternal destination. We also don't get what we deserve in leadership. The season of Advent reminds us that God sent his forever king into this world some 2,000 years ago to accomplish the Father's mission, to provide the redemption for his people, and ascended to the Father's right hand and promises to return to establish an eternal kingdom that shall not fail. Psalm 72 is a royal psalm, a messianic psalm. It is possible that Solomon wrote this psalm. It's also equally possible that uh, it's a psalm of David written for this coronation event. And it also could be possible that a number of talented poets serving in the Davidic administration pin this together for Solomon's coronation or perhaps a follow-up anniversary event. Regardless of the authorship, it's clear that it seeks God's blessings on the throne of David. 
It, it elevates and maintains the high standards of expectation for the Davidic king, but ultimately points to the divine provision of God's forever king for his people. Psalm 72 describes the king that we desire. It's a prayer, and this prayer becomes ours as it progressively moves through the the desires for a king that will reign with a righteous rule, a sovereign rule, a compassionate rule, and lastly, a glorious rule. A righteousness is sought for the king sitting on David's throne, and with righteousness is accompanied justice peace, and prosperity. This prayer begins bluntly with a request to God to give the king your justice, O God. The top of his request list is for a just king, because a just king is a good king. Such a king governs with a standard that is above himself. He is under the law. He is impartial. A man of justice judges but according to law, not to win approval, not plain favorites. Such a king is not corrupted by bribes, is not in it for self-interest, but seeking the glory of God and the good of the people. In the latter days of the judges, the people of Israel cried out to Samuel, give us a king like the nations. God answered their request. Samuel warned the people that such a king would confiscate their property, raise their taxes, enlist and conscribe their children in the king's service. Such is the price for security, or at least the appearance of security. Israel got what it wanted in the fickle and self-centered king Saul, whom Dr. Rogers profiled last Sunday. The people suffered through the failings of the king they deserved before receiving the king that they desired. A man after God's own heart, a righteous and just king who ushered in a lengthy season of peace and prosperity for God's people. David is a king by which all other kings in Israel were measured, kind of like our own George Washington, the man of whom all presidents are measured up to. David's successes in battle would prepare the way for peace for his son Solomon. And so it is in verse 3 that the psalmist cries out that, that the mountains would bear prosperity. The word prosperity comes from shalom. Shalom in Hebrew can mean peace or prosperity. It kind of has this, this echo back to gar- the Garden of Eden. It's the way things are supposed to be under God's kingly rule. Well, the name Solomon derives from the word shalom. And of course, under Solomon, Israel knew a season of peace and prosperity like never before and never afterwards. This peace under such a king is furthered in verse 4 because this just king will defend the cause of the poor. He will deliver the needy because he crushes oppressors. He is feared by the wicked. And under his rule, verse 7, the righteous will flourish and peace will abound. 
The psalmist goes on to paint a broad picture of prosperity under the rule of such a righteous king of justice and peace. His reign will be like the rain from heaven that waters the earth and produces abundance from a fertile land. People who are governed by the rule of law, whose property rights are respected, who are not under constant threat of enemies, usually develop their resources and prosper. Israel in Solomon's day was a season of prosperity when they enjoyed peace on every side. You can see the consequences of law and order and peace and justice as we look around the world today. America and Europe have enjoyed a kind of peace and prosperity unknown to places in Africa in Southeast Asia, largely because of the difference of government, the difference of not having the rule of law and the respect of property rights, of crushing oppressors and those who abuse the weak. You see, corruption threatens prosperity. Facing a season of blessing followed by famine, the pharaoh of Egypt appointed Joseph as prime minister over all of Egypt to spare the land from economic ruin. In Joseph, he found a man with whom was the spirit of the living God, a man of integrity, a just man who was incorruptible, would not exploit this opportunity nor yield to bribes and put at risk a nation at peril. You and I desire a ruler like Joseph who is incorruptible, who will teach the truth and flee from evil. We want a leader like Nehemiah who confronted oppressors, who restores freedom to slaves. We long for rulers with the zeal of David, the wisdom of Solomon. But I believe the challenge for us tonight is whether we desire righteousness, justice, and peace the way God does. Do we want it more than we want our own economic interest? What if it cost us? Are we willing to sacrifice for it? There were believers in the past who did. It makes me think of believers like William Wilberforce, and members of what became known as the Clapham sect in Britain, who labored for decades to bring an end to the slave trade and to eventually abolish slavery across the British Empire. These believers had a zeal for justice, to restore human dignity, even acting against their own self-interest and security. Theirs was a passion for righteousness, to also seek the reformation of public morals in a society that had degenerated, that was Christian in name only, where marriage was disrespected, where the children and poor were neglected. Ignorance was rampant. The privileged were entitled and aloof and uncaring towards the poor and the vulnerable. Wilberforce and others made fashionable the restoration of biblical marriage and family, lending aid to lift the poverty out of their plight 
improving health care and safety standards in education, advocating for the oppressed. A hundred years ago, in our own nation, a movement began in the, Christian, in the church world called the social gospel movement, seeking to help fix and cure the ills of our own society. However, such a movement neglected something very important, neglected the gospel. And in reaction to it, conservative Christians uh, put a focus more on evangelism and the saving of souls, almost to the exclusion of any care for the poor and the weak and social issues. I believe our text, I believe the biblical vision of Psalm 72, the ministry of Christ himself, the prophecies of Isaiah beckon us to care for issues of justice, to help bring righteousness and reformation to our society without neglecting the gospel. Like the way Pastor John Piper said it years ago, we should all care about suffering, especially eternal suffering. The gospel is first in priority. But the implications of the gospel spill out not only into people's eternal welfare, but also their temporal welfare. And issues of justice and righteousness do matter. Psalm 72 does beckon us with its vision of joining God in the work of promoting justice and righteousness to put down oppression to care for people's temporal needs. And when believers do that with full integrity, without compromising the gospel, I believe that people do see the beauty and the glory of Christ and long for a ruler, the true king of heaven to come to earth. No, we cannot establish a utopia on earth by our best efforts. Abortion and trafficking Prejudice, poverty, and other evils will remain with us until our king returns. But may it fuel within us a longing. And may we join our God and king as his faithful stewards, promoting his standards of justice and righteousness where we have the influence and the opportunity to do so. Well, Psalm 72 not only shows us the righteous rule of God's king, but also his sovereign rule, both in an endless reign and a boundless realm. Long live the king. The mantra popularized by various entertaining reminders of past practices in court etiquette. Even the prophet Daniel said, O king, live forever, joining his fellow court members of the Babylonian and Persian courts. And, of course, expressing something that's utter nonsense as though a human king would live past a normal lifespan. As Americans, we shudder at the notion of lifetime appointments. But here in verses 5 to 7, the psalmist desires the lengthy reign of a just king. He compares it to the sun in the sky. And as long as the moon would endure throughout all generations... A look at biblical history demonstrates that the kings of Judah enjoyed enjoyed longer and healthier reigns compared to the short and tumultuous reigns of the kings of Israel. Solomon did enjoy a long reign, but falls desperately short of the hope and the expectations of the Davidic heir 
who would reign on this throne forever. Verse 8 goes on to envision this king's dominion from sea to sea, from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Kings from all of the earth would come to render tribute, to pay homage. And once again here, Solomon partially fulfills this vision of spreading the heights and breadth of Israel's empire in terms of territory and wealth. But it was Solomon's selfish excess that brought in the steady decline of Judah's welfare. His descendants would revive the former glories, but only temporarily, as the royal line and the people of Israel fell further and further into idolatry, immorality, until the Lord their God punished them in exile. It was there, and upon return, that Israel waited for centuries for the arrival of God's promised king, the heir to David's throne an everlasting kingdom with a dominion that endures throughout all generations. And yet when he came, he was not recognized by his people. He was not what they expected. The psalmist in our text cries out for a righteous and sovereign king and one whose rule is ruled with compassion in verses 12 through 14. It says that he delivers the needy to those who call out his name and to the poor, to the one who has no helper. I was helping a woman to our food pantry recently, a woman whom I've known for years but didn't know much of her story until she finally confided to me that she was HIV positive. A single mom with four children, surviving with the health care available to her. And we talked about how she was learning to trust the Lord to provide for her. A woman who is truly an outcast, needy by biblical standards and by the standards of our own day. The king of this psalm in verse 13 is one who pities the weak, who saves the lives of the needy, delivering them from oppression and violence. Because precious is their blood in his sight. Regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of status, precious are their lives in his sight. The description of compassion on this king echoes the words we find in the book of Job as the protagonist defends himself against the false charges of his friends turned adversaries. Psalm 72 parallels the language of of Proverbs 31, where King Lemuel says to his son, Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Such a combination of righteousness and compassion is no more vivid than the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus boldly confronted oppressors. Dozens of times the Gospels speak of his pity, his compassion upon the weak, the helpless, the sheep who needed a shepherd. Yes, Job, as a, light, as a type of Christ, and Jesus himself demonstrate that true greatness, true greatness is demonstrated by righteous compassion. Even Solomon in all of his wisdom eventually became a cruel oppressor whose yoke became heavy upon the people of the north. Contrast his reign 
with the Lord Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. Will you submit to this king? Do you desire this king? This one who was rejected by his own people, it says in John 1, that he came to his own, and yet his own people did not receive him. Even the rulers of his day cynically said, we have no king but Caesar. Which king do you prefer? A Saul or a David? Caesar or the Christ? The history of revolutions is a story of the oppressed rising up in protest against the gluttonous abuses and misuses of the powerful. People in power are in it for power. Government serves to advance the cause of government. It doesn't matter which party. And yes, there are those who will advocate for the poor, but only do it to advance their own political gain and trap them in further government dependency. Many of us have learned that sending money to foreign countries oftentimes only builds up bureaucracies controlled by the powerful and the riches never, never making it or reaching the poor. Yes, we live in a broken world with much injustice. Like you, I long for a world free of racial injustice where people do not have indignifying government dependency, where there are educational and work opportunities for all. And if there's anything I've learned in ministry and from God's Word, is that true compassion is not giving merely out of guilt, but entering into people's lives in the likeness of Jesus to restore to seek reformations, to seek the restoration of people's dignity through work, through ownership, through investment in their own communities. We desire a king who rules in righteousness, who has a truly sovereign rule, a compassionate king. But lastly, this prayer calls for a glorious rule. Verse, four, verse 15 says, Long may he live, not a prayer for a despot clinging to power, one hoarding wealth for the benefit of his cronies, not a king who rules with an iron fist, forcing his people to worship him while they starve in poverty, but rather a king whose people gladly bring him gold, who delight to pray on his behalf, who are grateful for his righteous rule and the prosperity that it brings. The final language of the abundance of grain, the fr fruit, where the people blossom like the grasses of the field. Glorious are the blessings of the people whose God is the Lord, who are ruled in righteous compassion. And friend, if you are a subject of the King of Heaven, glorious are your blessings. How fruitful are the blessings of Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, redemption and rescue from the tyranny of the devil, full acceptance in the kingdom of God, adoption as a well-loved son or daughter of the living 
God, eternal fellowship with your God and King and all of his people. This giver of blessings has a glorious name, the name that is above every name. And so the closing prayer of this psalm is for the king with a name that will endure forever. This is no mere multi-term president, no mere hero fading from the past. This is the Lord our God, in verse 18, the one who alone is blessed, for he does wondrous things. May his glorious name be blessed forever. By the saints who have been rescued and redeemed by the blood of their Savior King, there's a theme in the ministry of Jesus, a theme that coincides with his zeal for righteous compassion, and that is his all-consuming passion for the glory of his heavenly Father. And so it's in Jesus that we see the vision of verse 19 fulfilled, when the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Men desire glory. But no man can bear its weight. There is only one who is worthy of glory. Desire the king who seeks the glory, who delights in the glory of God. David defended the glory of God and yet also sought his own. There is only one who wholeheartedly delighted in the glory of his heavenly father, Jesus whose zeal surpassed David's, who was more reliable than Joseph, more patient than Job, had greater integrity than Nehemiah, whose intercession more effective than Moses. I suppose there are many Americans who would be happy to have a leader much like our very first president. In terms of ability and integrity, a man not self-serving in his ambition for high office. Perhaps America might yet once again be blessed with another Lincoln, a man of courage and perseverance, of political savvy, wit, compassion to confront our nation's problems. But regardless of whether we enjoy such temporal blessing, whether we have another American president to achieve the greatness of the past, we have... A king, a king who rules in righteousness, one who is truly sovereign, who exercises just compassion. To him belongs the glory, the glory forever and ever as he awaits his father's command to return, to restore and set up a kingdom that shall never end. To him be glory, praise, and honor forever and ever. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful for this time of year to remember that we have a king whose rule is secure, is unchallenged by your enemies. And we long for the day when we will see the king in all of his glory and splendor. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen.